Welcome to a special 58th New York Film Festival edition of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Today, NYFF Director of Programming, Dennis Lim, is joined by director Steve McQueen to discuss Mangrove, making its world premiere at the festival. An epic piece of McQueen's small acts anthology, Mangrove tells the true story of Frank Critchlow, the Trinidad-born owner of a cafe in Notting Hill, who is arrested for protesting the police's intimidation and brutality. This is a vivid and gripping dramatization of these events and the resulting landmark 1970 court case of Critchlow and the other defendants who came to be known as the Mangrove Nine. Get tickets for tonight's premiere at the Queen's Drive-In or nationwide virtual tickets at filmlink.org. Small Acts at the 58th NYFF is presented by Kempari. Then, Director of Programming Dennis Lim is joined by Siming Lang to discuss one of the Taiwanese director's best and sparest works, Days. In the film, Li Kang Shang plays a variation on himself, wandering through a lonely urban landscape and seeking treatment for a chronic illness. At the same time, a young Laotian immigrant working in Bangkok goes about his daily routine. The lives of these two solitary men eventually converge. To learn more about NYC Drive-In and nationwide virtual tickets for NYFF, visit filmlink.org. Let's go now to the conversation. Uh, thank you for joining me for this Q&A uh, with the director of Mangrove, uh, Steve McQueen. Hi, Steve. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. So, um, Mangrove is, I think, the film that comes first chronologically in the Small Axe series. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, um, you mentioned that 1968 was uh, an important year um, for um, maybe I would say in the history of of Black British activism, uh, given the Enoch Powell speech. about the rivers of blood that's sort of this famously racist speech um and it was also the year that um frank critchlow uh opened the mangrove uh so can you say a little bit about you know when you, you and you were you were not yet born i think you were born in end of the yeah. yeah so um when when the story of the mangrove nine um when, when did you first uh learn about it um, it's it's you know I, I kind of like in my consciousness. I mean, my 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 mother was very much sort of a, um, you know telling these sort of stories. Of course, when I was young about these things, and so I I, I knew growing up about these stories, and I was always a bit sort of a surprised that it wasn't sort of so much uh, in the public consciousness. Um, and it's just one of those things where I guess a lot West Indian people. You know, I, when I grew up, they loved Westerns. Westerns were the thing. My, my father was crazy about Westerns. And of course, country music. Country country and Western, rather, excuse me. Country music was, was huge in the West Indies. I mean, I think, you know, there was, I don't know, there must have been some sort of, you know, some kind of a blitz from, from the States, sort of, you know, country music, country music, country music. Um, so the whole idea of the mangrove for me is almost like a Western. It's like crack. Mm-hmm. This guy opening a, a saloon, um, you know, maybe you know, he, you know, he was um, 
He's going, he's going straight and he's just opened this little saloon. And it's a hole in the wall, Mangrove. Mangrove was a place where he wanted the community to sort of feel a little bit um, a home away from home. Um, that cooked you know, West Indian food and, you know, people gravitated to it. But the Mangrove, it became so popular that it wasn't just a, a, a sort of a haunt for um, the you know, local West Indian community. It was a haunt for sort of, you know, the sort of the, the hoi polloi, um, you know, if it was the stones or if it was the, the animals or whatever, Hendrix or, you know, Marvin Gaye or whatever, it became this place where people would go. It became the cool joint in town and everybody wanted to go there. Um, you know, Vanessa Redgrave and, 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 and the like. Um, and I think, you know, it's the story of this guy who opens a saloon and this sheriff who comes to town um, and, uh, you know, wants to sort of, uh, you know, get in this guy's face. Um, and it's a, it's a very simple story, really. I know you know a lot about film history. Did you have any particular Westerns in mind as you were writing this? No, I will say. Sorry, I said that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to mention any. It's just, just because I just feel that those kind of narratives are very, those, those stories aren't, aren't they? they? They are about sort of some guy who's trying to go on a straight and narrow after he was, a, after he was bad. And, uh, you know, this, 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 there's, there's, that, there's that sheriff who, who can't forget, who won't let go, and sort of wants to bring him back to his past um, uh, and, and, and wants to close him down. Um, so it's that simple, just a simple story. You know, it's a bar, it's a hole in the wall. Mangrove, but mangrove became the front line. The mangrove became the sort of um, the, 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 the front line of the state against any kind of black sort of consciousness in, in, in London, any kind of black gathering of intellectuals or, or thinkers in London. And that's, that, 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 that's, that's the truth. It was very strange that this became, this little, this little hole in the wall became so threatening, but it, but it did. Yeah. And then for me, the movie starts off with some kind of, I like the idea of starting off some kind of cheap soap and then ending up as sort of, a, you know, a, a, a Lawrence of Arabia. It's kind of like, it's a, it, it's a snowball. And you can't believe it. You can't believe it's gone that far. You can't believe it's it's sort of, it's, it's, it's uh, it could go that far. Because at a certain time, you think, no, no, it's going to stop here. No, no, it's going to stop here. But actually go all the way to, you know, the Crown Court. It goes all the way the old Bailey. Can, can you say a bit about the process of um, researching this particular film? Um, it sounds like a lot of research did go into to the project um, overall, but in the case of um, Mangrove, I, some of the members of the Mangrove Nine are still alive, I, I believe. I think Althea Jones and, and, and Barbara Beast and maybe some others are still alive, even though I think Frank Critchlow and Darkus Howe are no longer with us. Mm -hmm. Um, we had an amazing uh, researcher who was just incredible. And again, lots of interviews, lots of, um, you know, I interviewed some people. And, and Alistair, Alistair, the co writer, was hugely sort of intense because he actually, you know, he did the Christo family and uh, you know, he actually went to Frank's funeral. And he had, you know, sort of had found, in fact, because that's strangely enough. The year, that year of the starting of the, of the case of the mangroves, uh, there were no actual court records, but we did have records uh, taken from the, uh, from the local um, uh, gazette who sent the journalists in there every day and recorded all of the trial. 
Um, and that was extremely helpful as far as the trial of the trial seems to be. But, you know, um, interviewing people like uh, Anthea um, was hugely important just to get the crust of, of it and, and, and others who were, who were around it. But mainly just I want to focus on Frank because Frank is this, this guy who all he wants to do is sort of um, open a restaurant for his local community, but he gets you know, entangled in this thing, which is bigger than he can ever think of. Can, can you say a little bit about putting this cast together? Um, I think Letitia Wright is, is, I think, fairly well known to, to, to a lot of people, but um, it's, it's quite a yeah, really impressive ensemble cast. I'm actually also curious if you could say a little bit about how you found the actors for, for Love is Rock, because, I mean, the, the performances across the films are, are really remarkable. People just haven't got, you know, it was easy just because we had, well, we had Gary Daly, who was, who was a cast director, who was amazing. But there's so much talent. There's talent. Um, it's like, you know, it's like my mother would say in Grenada, there's a lot of mango trees and there's so many mangoes. People play football with the mangoes because but there's no way to sell them. There's no way to store them. There's no way to sort of can them. And in some ways, these, these were the actors. There's so many great actors, but they had, they had no way to show their talent. But we were very lucky. We were very fortunate to sort of um, be able to work with them. And of course, some weren't as trained as others, but as soon as you sort of, you're in the group, that was it. It's all about opportunity, Dennis, and, and that was it. And I was very happy. And I was very happy, and I was very grateful to sort of ha um, have them on, on on this project because you know they 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 made the project what it, what it is. Yeah, but at the same time, I think I I read um, an opinion piece that you wrote in the Guardian a couple of months ago about the lack of um, of black representation behind the camera uh, on a British film set. Um, and I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that. I mean, returning, you know, um, to make your first British production in 12 years. And yeah, also in the States when I was, I made films in the States, it's, it's always been, you know, and I've always asked them to why this, and, and there's always been excuses. Um, and it's one of those things where I've done the best I can, um, but you're so far in production, you know, you just have to get on with the, on with the show. This time, I was ready for them. I was like, okay, this is how it has to be. This is how I need it to be. Um, and it was, I was very grateful for Tracy um, uh, um, um, and Dave, the, the, the two producers on this, who sort of basically facilitated that and got it done and accommodated that. And we had basically, in every department, we had at least two trainees, um, which was amazing. Um, because again, it's about opportunities. And if you don't get opportunity, how are you going to... Uh, be able to sort of, you know, have experience. So that was for me a very important thing. So we did, you know, I think not as good as I would like, but it was pretty, I mean, it was I mean, to have you know, at least two um, or, or, or as well as apprentice on in every, in every uh, um, excuse me, um, department, as well as I think it's three heads of, three black heads of a department, now four at certain points, costume, camera, sound, and myself, um, so that was very important. It was, it, was, it, was, it was very important, very important. And also the fact that is that uh, this talent is out there, but if you don't don't give an opportunity, I mean, I know in the UK we have at least two generations of 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 of, of, of talent that have gone that have never had the opportunity to shine. Um, and it's just it's heartbreaking, really. You you said that um, you know the mangrove nine was something that was always in your consciousness growing up, but, but I'm, I'm wondering if there was a moment of 
of political awakening for you as a young man? Um, I mean, I think I do think there's a strong you know, political dimension in in your work as an artist and a filmmaker. I mean, and if you think of you know, um, I mean, your first feature, Hunger, is a film about about protest. You know, so um, I'm day, wondering if there was from day one because you know, as a black male child growing up in London, you know, at a certain point you'll ask yourself who, how, why, and what. Uh, because of who you are. So, I mean, there's never a day when uh, you don't think of it in one way. And as growing up, I, you know, I think as, you know, as, a, as a young man, as a, as, a, as a young boy, young child, you're critical from day one. Absolutely. There's no, there's no how, how, how could I not be, unfortunately, or fortunately? You know, how can I not be? Not to say they took away any innocence. In fact, it illuminated a lot of things, but it's almost it's unavoidable. For me, as a you know, as a black as a black person, as a black man, or as, as a black child, because you always constantly ask yourself who, how, why, and what. Always, always. Um, you know, just did. So you wouldn't point to any particular moments in. I'm, I'm curious, just because I think the you know the period that um, the films cover sort of map over your formative years, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what your experiences of those years were as, 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 as a boy, as a young, you know, well, as... There are moments where I could, you know, direct moments, um, but there are moments, but it has happened since the first time when, you know, um, I was, they, they were trying to exclude me and uh, a, a group from school. You are, why? You know, and then I remember my 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 neighbor Milton. Milton came from Grenada too. Is a is a is a neighbor of mine. And Milton, I remember one day he because he's always he was a wonderful but guy. He always always used to post me um, uh, news clippings and, and put an envelope and put my name on it. And one day I got this booklet through the door and I opened the booklet. What's this booklet? And it was about this just black guy, black American guy. And I look at it and say, who's this? As Walsh Miners and you know uh, anniversary, and there's this guy called Paul Robson. Who was this black American guy? And Welsh Miners, I couldn't, I couldn't make, I couldn't make head or tail of it. And you know, this is when I was 11 years old. <laughs> so it just constantly, constantly sort of asking myself questions, constantly sort of, um, yeah, it's, it's, and it's a part of your existence, isn't it? I mean, it was, I, I could, I couldn't avoid it. That's it. Yeah. So just one one last question for um, about Mangrove, and I'm I'm wondering if you if you see this film, I guess, and and um, the the other films in the series as in conversation with um, this a small but I think important you know tradition of, of Black British cinema. I'm wondering you know there there are certain films um, that are contemporaneous with the events and small acts, like I think and films like Babylon you know, and pressure. And I'm wondering if those were important films for you as, as a young man um, and, and whether you see these films as sort of um, you know, in conversation with them. Babylon was, because I remember seeing Babylon and thinking, oh my God, that, uh, you know, it's kind of, it was funny for me because then all of a sudden there's a big screen being a culture which you never actually saw got any attention at all. And that was funny. And interestingly, now Dennis Burrell, who did the music on, 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 uh, on Babylon, uh, produced Silly Games. And who is in the picture? He's the old guy with the hat. That's Dennis. <laughs> so yeah, that was a crossover. There was a there was there was a crossover there. Um, but I, yeah, that was interesting because that was the first time I saw that on on a big screen. That, that, uh, definitely Babylon. 
um, you know, and, and humor as well, which was kind of which was which was, was kind of great. Um, but it, you know, I I would I would say that um, there, there hasn't ever been enough, of, of course. And in some ways, maybe it was my sort of my 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 hunger, my sort of passion to sort of fill that gap, possibly. You know, and ask questions at the same time because you know, cinema film is just this wonderful medium where. You know, again, you're working with these actors, you're telling stories. So it's, you know, um, yes, politics comes into play, but it's all about human, um, as I say, human journeys, which, which, are, which are in there. Um, you know, and I think Frank Critchlow goes on a massive journey. You know, Frank is not an intellectual. Frank, you know, he, you know, he's not political. He's just a guy who just wants to open a restaurant. And 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 celebrate with his friends, and then you know. But he's opened his door to every and anyone, you know. The the the, the, the black power movement, the sort of intellectuals, the, the the. But also at the same time, you know, people who just want to sort of come and 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 talk about the old times and and sing, you know, and feel a little bit a home away from home. So through that, he was had become political. He was forced to become. You know, these children, these young kids who are being pulled up the streets and. And 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 being intimidated by the by the police, he had no alternative but to get in, in, in involved. And what's interesting was also about Darkus's speech. When Darkus says about Frank, he says, um, you know, you know, if you know, the, the mangrove did not belong to Frank anymore. It belonged to the community, and and rightly so. And Frank knew that. And Frank, you know, he, you know, he was pulled along in in, in the current. Well, I want to thank you, Steve, for joining us for this uh, Q&A about Mangrove, and I want to urge everybody to also watch the other two uh, films um, from the Small Axe anthology that are in the New York Film Festival this year, Love is Rock um, and Red, White, and Blue. So thanks again, Steve. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Make sure you don't miss a thing by subscribing to the Film at Lincoln Center newsletter featuring weekly programming updates, new podcast episodes, special offers, and much more. Visit filmlink.org slash news. Uh, welcome, everyone, to this Q&A with director Simon Liang, whose film Days is part of our main slate this year. Uh, I'm very pleased that he could join us. Uh, and we have Vincent Chang to translate as well. Um, I'm just going to start by asking you to tell us how this film uh, came together. I understand that it was not a conventional a script or a conventional process. And in fact, there was footage that you had been gathering um, over the years that eventually uh, became uh, the film days. So we're going to talk about how the whole project started. And right after I finished Stray Dogs, there's a, a period of times that I sort of pause in terms of my creative uh, productions and uh, for quite a long time. But in the meantime, I was still making uh, different theatrical pro uh, productions and projects, uh, including the Worker series. And uh, I think that a lot of uh, European uh, viewers and uh, curators that are very from the museums, they're very interested in seeing these works. So uh, in 2014, I was invited to show these sort of the, the Walker series in Brussels, in Vienna. And during that time, after we traveled to Brussels and Vienna, all the other European uh, 
countries for this theatrical productions that um, uh, when we got, got off the airplane that uh, we realized that uh, Lee Tongsheng was ill and um, uh, he, he suffered a, a minor stroke and part of uh, his body was really, really uh, hard to uh, move and also just very, very weak in general. So at the time that we had this uh, cinematographer with us all the time to document our journey uh, going to Europe with this particular theatrical production. And um, <clears throat> as the uh, Kongshun was suffering from this particular minor stroke, the uh, cinematographer started filming and documenting the, the progression and the state of uh, his uh, illness. And I thought that later on, when we look back on the footage we collected at the time, I found it very, very interesting that usually when you have uh, certain illness that you want to show in films, you ask the actor to act it out, uh, to, to appear sick. And in this case that he was indeed uh, suffering from this particular illness, not only all the way from the minor stroke to later on the, the neck uh, have some kind of issues that uh, it is not aligned properly. So when I found out that uh, the footage that we get gathered was very, very interesting, I really want to continue to document uh, his progressions and his recuperations and um, recovering from this particular illness and also the treatments received to cure this particular illness. So uh, during that time, we continue to document the process of not only receive treatments, but also we also uh, we moved from the urban center all the way to the rural side of Taipei in order for uh, uh, us to nurse him back to health. And we documented the process as well. So I do think that uh, this is the, the impetus for us to uh, start this particular project is to document the process of the, the minor stroke to the, uh, the neck issues, to the treatments received, and also the change of sceneries from the urban center to the rural area to nursing back to health. And uh, that became the uh, starting point of this film, Dave's. Yeah. And when I was collecting those footage in terms of the treatment, uh, the illness that uh, the conscience suffered from, I didn't really think about uh, making a film as a concept, more uh, so that I was just collecting footage, almost like making a deposit or some kind of archival deposit so that I can gather all the footage and information for future use. And especially at the time, I was involved in museum projects and I really thought about how the footage can then be exhibited or shown in uh, these uh, museum venues rather than uh, making a final film out of it. So it is with this particular concept of uh, documenting, collecting footage, deposit them into this archive for you later use. And that is also how I started filming Anong Hong Xiangxi uh, someone that uh, it's a who is a Laotian immigrant workers in Bangkok, where I met him for the first time. Uh, he was in restaurants that we came across each other. I started to uh, create connection with him 
virtually or through Skype that I started to uh, get to know him a little more, especially the way that uh, he cooked, the way that he go about his daily lives. And I thought that this is someone that I also want to film and deposit into the archive I've mentioned before. And that's why we just a very small crew uh, that we went to Thailand and Bangkok in order to somehow film uh, announce daily lives and you know, the way he cooked, the way he go about his daily routine. And at the time, I didn't even uh, think about uh, whether or not the constant portions of the footage will have anything to do with Anand's portion of the footage. It's not until after three or four years when I was talking to a cinematographer about what we have gathered in terms of the footage uh, with the Kangshan and with Anand Hongshansi. And we thought that maybe uh, there's a, a possibility of somehow integrating these two parts of the footage we have gathered and we have deposited and archived and somehow create uh, a narrative film out of them. So when I was collecting and documenting the treatments and illness and also the life, daily lives at Anang, uh, I didn't have this concept of making or collecting documentary materials or footage for future use. More so is just to collect images that touch me. And for me, the deposit in the archive of images are very important because they somehow reflect and represent anything that uh, have very, very intimate connections with my eyes and with me as an observer and will touch me so much so that I want to record them and document them. And that's the reason why that uh, the treatments I mentioned about the conscious illness and that's a certain level of intimacy that uh, I have with that, those images. And also the daily life at Anon that uh, as well because of our interaction through Skype and I became um, or I found the intimacy uh, between himself as a person and myself as an ob objective observer. And that's the reason why I somehow collect all these images for future use. And as I mentioned before, uh, it is not until three or four years later when the cinematographer, also my editor, we're thinking about uh, almost like an experiment of creating this possibility of somehow integrating these two sets of footage and images that we have collected. And I do think that uh, the images to me is very much about myself as an observer with my eyes, observing two different people, two different bodies and how they evolve through time. And um, I just use the case of Anand to me, because of his status as, uh, as an immigrant worker, which I have very, very close uh, uh, connections where I can relate to them completely just because of my own experience as a, as a director in, uh, grew up in Malaysia and now worked in Taiwan. So I, I really 
uh, have that kind of affinity with them. And I, I really, they, their story really touched me a lot, including my previous film, I Don't Want to Sleep Alone. It's very much about these immigrant workers. So that, that sense of intimacy is there and that really compelled me to document Anand's daily lives because of that connection and intimacy uh, through my eyes. So I, 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 because of that, uh, after three or four years, uh, as I mentioned, that I wanted to integrate them with the assistance of my editor and cinematographer, and not to somehow put the footage within this framework of a screenplay, because I completely scratched the idea. I didn't want to have a screenplay to know exactly what I, the storyline will be. And what I did instead is to say, okay, now there's a possibility of integrating these two sets of footage. Now, how can I then go forward and develop something without a screenplay and just let it evolve organically, spontaneously, and finding a new way, a new mode of making films without going through the regular or conventional mode of production within the industry. The music box uh, plays an important part in the film, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the significance um, of the object and also of the music that we hear from it, which is, um, I believe it's the music from a, a Chaplin film, Limelight. So the idea came out of integrating these two sets of footage. I need to start thinking about how that might happen or not happen in terms of how these two characters meet. And I think at the time when we went to Thailand to, to film this scene, especially the hotel scene, how they met, I was very, very anxious. And the reason for it is because, as I mentioned before, I didn't want to somehow treat this like a documentary film. But at the same time, I also want to make sure that the narrative elements and um, the, the, the nature of a narrative film can be reduced and minimized to, um, to very, very uh, minimum uh, aspect of the, all aspects of the film. So I treat it, even though that this is a narrative film, I treat it very much like a poetry. And I treat it very much like a metaphor, almost, that to somehow have these two characters meet in this particular setting. So even though I was very anxious shooting the hotel scene, uh, I, the, what troubled me the most is to think about how expressive or how subtle I want to somehow create this particular scene in order for it to have the maximum impact. The concept of having this particular massage scene, it is something that can happen or not happen for them to meet. But for me, I think that in order for that kind of intimacy and some and tease out the possibilities of uh, that can be carried through the future uh, to the future, and so also after their brief encounters has ended, I wanted to somehow uh, inject, interject, or somehow put in this particular object to create some type of closure and also some type of new beginning. Uh, for the quote-unquote storyline that I want to uh, create with this particular narrative film. So that's the reason why that uh, the, the existence and the introduction of that music box. The music box itself is something that actually I personally in real life 
about six months before the shooting of this particular scene in a hotel, I gave it to Anang as a gift. And uh, so that actually happened in real life, a gift for me, uh, sorry, a gift from me to Anang uh, as, a, as a gift, as a token of uh, my, my appreciation of our friendship. And the, how the music box came about is that when I was in Amsterdam for a film museum's uh, project, at the time, my producer actually discovered this particular music box playing Chaplin's uh, music uh, used in Limelight. And she uh, knows me very well that I really like that particular piece of music. And in fact, I like it so much that I utilize it and use it as part of my uh, soundtrack music in the film, I Don't Want to Sleep Alone. And it's very much something that, um, to me, it, it's something I love, I enjoy, and also it turns out to be an actual gift I have given to Anand in real life six months before the shooting. And I, I just felt that uh, it makes everything come full circle, and it's a very, uh, to me, uh, a, a very intimate way of creating this particular moment that having these two people meet and then uh, have that component of the music box, music box with the music that actually means something very, very uh, close to my heart. Could you uh, speak to the significance of the film's title, uh, Days? Um, I wonder if that refers to what you had said in an earlier answer about the film emerging from this daily, this archive of daily life. And I'm, I'm wondering what, what the title Days means uh, to you. 就是一个片名，呃，很容易理解的一个片，一个片名，就是日常生活，啊，两个人的日常生活，啊，也也没有特别有有多大。So it's a film title that is simple, very much like what I want to present with this particular film. It is can be easily understood, and it's very minimal. And that captured the essence of this film. Uh, as I mentioned, the concept is to somehow uh, to create a different way of presenting and making films and outside of conventional and prevalent um, modes of production within the film industry. And how can I present simply images with its purest form without going into the whole uh, modes of productions within the film industry, it is something that should come out very, very uh, simple, simplistically and in the purest form. Um, and that is the reason why uh, this is a film very much about their daily lives. And I just think that it's fitting to use a very simple and very minimal title such as Days. Um, it, I think also underscores that it is a film about uh, time like uh, all his films. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about um, just working with uh, time, um, whether the sense of duration that is so important in his work is something that is um, created on the set, felt on the set, or if it's something that emerges in, in the editing, uh, in, 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 in revisiting the footage. Um, 
this uh, you know this experience of time that his all his films um, create that is very particular. I'm wondering if that's something that comes um, in the shooting or in the editing or both. I want to go back a little bit to talk about the title even more. And I do think that another element of why I named the film Days is because, as I mentioned, I want to stay away with the how the film industry usually uh, operates, including naming the films. Uh, usually they will try to find a very sensationalized, very catchy, very commercialized film titles in order for, to attract audience to want to see the film. For me, I do think that with Days as the film title, it's almost as if that it is a title for uh, a poem rather than a, a film. And that is very much what I was going for, is that it is so simple and so transparent and so clear that the audience, by reading the film title, they know exactly what they can expect from this particular film. It's about the days or the daily lives of these two actors and these two characters. So for me, it's simple to the point that it is clear for the audience to decide whether or not they want to see this film and be part of the experience. And that uh, was my intention. Going back uh, to the questions asked about the, the, the temporal elements in all my films, I do think that this is something that I'm very used to. It's my old habit. This is the way uh, I make films is to enjoy that uh, the not a lot of actions happens with the actors or the characters. Very much everything happens is within the context or in the backgrounds. So for the opening scene, for example, for when Lee Kangshin was sitting there without any movements or even uh, emotionless or expressionless, but in the back, you will hear and see the rains, the wind, and the tempo and the, um, the sound of the wind and the rain in the background is, some, is something that I actually want to capture even more so than the motionless or emotionless uh, actors and characters. And my actors, especially the Kangshan we have been working for so long together, they know my way of making films and what I am trying to capture. So that long duration of time with that static shot without any interruption, the actor know exactly how to somehow position themselves and continue to quote unquote act with, uh, until I finally say cut. And so that is actually a very, very long footage later on during the editing process, then I will decide how long of a duration within that long, long takes uh, that I have captured that I want to use. And of course, I do realize that the duration that you see in film, the final product in this particular film, usually uh, it's not only test the limit of patience for an audience, I will say that it surpasses the the, uh, the ability and the patience for the audience to somehow uh, look at or watch and gaze uh, for such a long period of time. 
But at the same time, I do think that that has a lot to do with my museum practices and museum pieces and exhibition is that I want to somehow uh, give the audience the decision whether or not they want to either walk away from this particular viewing experience. They can close their eyes if they want to. And I do think that it is that uh, the, the, the right length or duration for a scene I, as a director, is someone who can decide how long I'm going to give you. But at the same time, you as an audience, you have the decision-making power to decide how much of it you want to be part of. And as I mentioned, if this is not for you, you can walk away. If this is way too long for you, you can close your eyes without going through the entire duration of the images that I'm presenting. So to me, that's how I see uh, the way I treat time and the temporal elements of my film. Uh, I know that you've shown work um, in sort of museum and gallery settings um, and also VR um, in the last few years, but um, I'm not sure if you're aware that um, we are showing the film, the film is showing um, at a drive-in in New York uh, because of the regulations or, you know, because of, of, of the pandemic. So I'm wondering if, if any of his um, directed size films have ever shown uh, at a drive-in to his knowledge. Mm, it has never been shown this way before through drive-in. And uh, I think most of all, uh, most of them, they were shown indoor with the museums or uh, cinema. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, that uh, most of the, my films actually were shown either in cinema or museums or in drive ins. I, I do think that people tend to view films very differently in these different environments because it presents completely different atmospheres uh, when you watch a film in a cinema or you watch a film in a museum. It's definitely a lot more comfortable to view a film and watch a film in uh, a cinema, whereas in museums, uh, it's freer for the audience to choose how they want to watch and view the films. They can lean on the wall, they can be lying on the floor, cuddling up with a pillow. And it's just, uh, you, know, you can decide how you want to watch and consume that particular uh, work that I have present. And in fact, I also have experimented with one of my um, viewing uh, opportunity is to create the museum experience in a cinema, which means that I present the film, Your Face, actually, uh, was shown uh, at New York Film Festival yes. in the past. So I, sh I showed this film in a cinema that I have transformed into a museum space. So that on the one hand, yes, it is uh, in the cinema, but at the same time, audience will have the freedom to decide how they want to uh, consume or uh, watch and view the films 
very much like the, the, the museum setting. So that's almost like a hybrid of these two. So I have tried that before. So just one last question. Um, you know, the, since this project uh, originated from an impulse to document um, or just capture Li Kangsheng's illness, treatment, recovery, uh, I'm wondering how, how, is he, how is he doing now? So we say that he's probably 80 to 90% uh, recovered, uh, even though it's not fully recovered. I think that's a great improvement from before. And the illness and the ailment that he suffered from with uh, his neck is something that is very, very complex and uh, difficult to treat. And it takes a lot of rehabs in order for him to actually nurse himself and uh, to recover fully. And right now, it's about 80 to 90 percent and capacity. And uh, he's working. Uh, and in fact, right now, he's in mainland China shooting a film, a feature film there. And currently, his uh, commercial film is showing um, in Taiwan right now. Uh, and the audience would have the chance to see his work uh, in that commercial film. So he's, he has been working, um, but uh, his status in terms of the, the illness that he suffered from, it's, it has improved quite a bit. Uh, not only when we went to Thailand for the scene that they uh, met um, in the hotel, he was already somehow much improved from the 2014 when he first suffered uh, the, the minor stroke and later on the, the the neck issues, um, he has already improved quite a bit. And now it's even more so that he is, uh, again, as I said, almost fully recovered and he is very, very active and, uh, in terms of his work in different film productions. Well, we're glad to hear that. Um, and I want to thank you so much for, uh, for the film, for being part of the festival this year and for joining us for this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.